0: today to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, second last book of the Old Testament. So it's written 500 years before Jesus was born. So we keep that in mind, 500 years before Jesus was born. And in Zechariah chapter 9, especially 9 and 10, you have this prophecy of Jesus coming, and he's going to enter Jerusalem on a colt. And that was fulfilled 500 years later. So you see the Lord's word, how he fulfills it, how he um, prophesies what's going to happen. And you notice in Zechariah 9 through 14, those are the last six chapters, Uh The temple is now built, the people have returned, the temple is now built, and the people are saying, now what? (laughs) They're waiting for the promises of God to be totally fulfilled. (coughs) And the Lord says, no, not yet. Keep your eyes on the promises, though, but there's going to be intense conflict for the church, intense conflict. And you notice that Zechariah 9, 10, 11 is the first burden of the Lord. That's the word there, oracle or burden of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord. And then chapter 12, 13, 14 is the second oracle or burden of the Lord. So we read Zechariah 9. The burden of the word of the Lord. Against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth, and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house, because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I will see with mine eyes. And then you see 9 and 10. And you see that fulfilled in Matthew 21, verse 5. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river, the river here refers to the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. pit. Return to the stronghold, your prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. And you'll notice in 14, 15, 16, it talks about the Lord fighting for you, defending for you, and having victory. That's what 14, 15, 16 are about. Let's read them. Then the Lord shall be seen over them. His arrow shall go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. And then the defense. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as a flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness, how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. There's blessings for all of God's people, men and women and children. you notice how the passage begins it says, the burden of the word of the Lord against. That's how Zechariah 9 begins. Burden literally means, when you think of a burden, you think of a heavy load that needs to be lifted up. Well, this message is heavy. It's hard to say it. It's, hard, it's, it's not easy to proclaim it. No doubt. Right? Right? On the one hand, there's the glorious promise of the kingdom to come. Peace. And the reign of the, King of the King Jesus. On the other hand, he's prophesying. It will be intense conflict. There will be intense conflict between Christians, believers, and the world. Because you're not going to be of the same mind. You belong to a different Lord and different King. And there's that battle, the battle that God announced already in Genesis 3.15 between Christ and Satan, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Think of it this way. Think of it in terms of uh, a mother bearing a baby, right? The intense pain, the process of delivering a baby. Uh, Only a mother can know how intense that pain is. That's the way it is in terms of the conflict between the church and the world. But the result is what? Beauty and goodness. And that's what the Lord wants us to keep our eyes on. Because that beauty and goodness is forever and ever and ever. And victory belongs to the King of Kings. In the meantime, be prepared in your life for all kinds of conflict, all you know, hardship. Uh, things will not always necessarily go in the way that we think it goes. But it will go in the way that the Lord wants it to go. You trust in Him. You hold on to His promises. And that's why it begins with the burden, the burden of the word of the Lord. And what we see here is God is going to act upon His promises. And the promise is this. He will reclaim His kingdom. He will reclaim the entire creation for himself and for his people through his coming king. We're going to see that in three ways. First of all, he's going to do that by removing or by overcoming his enemies. He will do this, first of all, by overcoming or by destroying his enemies, the ones who caused that bitter conflict for his people. Second of all, he will do so by the coming of his king. His king, we see that in verses 9 and 10. Okay? And then in 11 through 17, we're also going to do that, see that he does that by saving his people to serve him in his kingdom. Right? The victory belongs to his people. So first of all, by overthrowing his enemies. That's what we see in verses 1 through uh, 8. By overthrowing his enemies. Second, by the coming of his king, that's the king we need to help us overcome, right, in the conflict. And then third of all, by saving his people to serve him in the kingdom, even as the conflict and the battle continues till the kingdom comes in all its fullness. So we turn to verses 1 through 8, and you think, what are all these names? strange names you would think that maybe he would talk about babylon assyria persia but now these all these unknown names of cities these are cities okay now picture here's israel but picture the whole west part of israel the north god moving from the north to the south okay so verses 1 through 8. So, word of the Lord against, and includes the list of what? Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath. That's in Syria to the north. Okay? By the river Euphrates. We saw the river in chapter 10, right? There's a hint there from the river Euphrates. That's to the north. And then to the west, there's Tyre and Sidon. You can look at it in a map in your back of your Bible. Tyre and Sidon is more or less to the west these were coastal cities along the Mediterranean Sea. Powerful, powerful cities, right? That, they were part of Phoenicia. So Syria to the north of those cities, to the west was Phoenicia, that's Tyre and Sidon. Boy, they had wealth like you wouldn't believe it. If you think that anyone could survive with all kinds of wealth, it would be them. It was like dust. <laughs> that's, that was their silver. Like, it was like dust. And their gold was like mire in the streets couldn't save them couldn't save them and then you have the picture of the four cities to the you could say the south of israel bordering egypt it mentions the four cities there we won't mention them there the text does in verses three and four but those four cities we belong to the country of philistia think of syria and phoenicia to the west and the philistines or philistia to the south It was very real to the people of God in those days. Okay, so the word of the Lord comes to them, but also to us in light of the the, uh, conflicts that we face. But the list here in verses 1 through 6, what was, why that list? Why those cities? Think of it in this way, in light of God's word. Verses 1 through 6 was the complete land, the complete land, and its boundaries, the land of Canaan, that God had originally promised to Abraham. (laughs) Okay, All those bordering cities, from Syria to the Philistines, that land was promised by God to Abraham. If you look at Genesis 15, verse 18, God promised him that they would have the land from the river of Egypt, that's where the Philistines were, all the way north to the river Euphrates, the great river. And the kingdom of Israel had those cities. They enjoyed that rule during the time of Solomon. Now it was not the case. Okay, where are we going with this? Well, God now revisits his promise. But now the Lord's promise is bigger than reclaiming this land. What he wants to show his people is that the Lord is going to reclaim all creation, the entire land, the entire world, of which this land, which God had promised Abraham, which this land was like a down payment. It was a promise. That was not the whole thing, right? God is saying, the whole world is mine. I'm going to reclaim it as my kingdom. But in the meantime, God gave Israel this, this land with those borders, okay? The completeness of that land, okay? But God is saying, because okay, that's only a down payment. That's not the real thing. The real thing is the entire creation. In case we're doubting, look at verse 10, right? The king is going to have the land from sea to sea, dominion. Okay, so God is using this instruction, okay? I'm going to complete my, uh, my, my my promise by beginning this land, but think beyond this little land of Israel to the entire world, the entire creation. And the Lord does this, first of all, by a thorough purging of the land of of his enemies, Syria, uh, Phoenicia, and the Philistines. And so with the fall of Tyre and inside with all its silver and gold, what happens in verses 3 and 4? Fear grips the people of Ashkelon to the south. Gaza is sorrowful for her king shall perish from her. Ashkelon will no longer be inhabited in verse 5. In all of this, God will cut off the pride of the Philistines, as we see in verse 6. And we know that God did destroy these cities. When did he destroy those cities? 200 years later, through Alexander the Great, or Alexander of Macedonia. He went through like a blitzkrieg, like lightning. And the Lord used Alexander the Great of Greece. You'll see Greece mentioned in verse 13. Right? He used Alexander the Great to destroy all those cities. Not that Alexander the Great was um, a servant of the Lord, but God used him in any way to bring destruction to those cities. But the point here, in this burden, in this oracle, is that God reclaims the world as his kingdom in Christ, and all his enemies, even today, will be as these cities and nations were. Everything that we see around us today, the enemies, those who, who um, are proud in their, in their voicing, those nations that are against the Lord, God will do to them in the future, even today, even as he did to those cities. That's the whole point here. The enemies will be as the nations and cities were. It's either one of two ways. Either bow before the king or perish. It's just one way or the other. God is not pleased. God is not pleased with the yearly murder of 100,000 babies in Canada. He is not pleased with that. God is not pleased that nearly 4%, 4% of all deaths in Canada over the last year are doctor-assisted suicides. God is not pleased. in our nation redefining marriage. God is not pleased that students are now going to public schools and they're being groomed, groomed for perverse lifestyles. God is not pleased. The word of the Lord against. The burden of the word of the Lord against. God is not pleased that our prime minister this past week is giving $100 million to the LGBT groups all across Canada so they can spread their perverseness. God is not pleased. Never mind what the nation says. God is not pleased with that. Just like he he was not pleased with the nations. When man exalts himself as God, God will cut off. God will cut down their arrogance. And you know what? It's this sort of thing that will bring conflict to the church because the church cannot comply. The church cannot give in. The church must stand under her king, the king that is coming, and hence the conflict. And that conflict may become more and more intense today. You know, God sees a kind of rule in our nation today. He is not pleased. He is not happy It's done in accord with the rule that he gave to Adam in the beginning in creation, right? Remember when God created man? He says, Adam, I give you this entire creation to rule over it as my servant over all creation. But those three things, before we move on to our second point, three things in verses 1 through 8. First of all, the Bible shows that sin and evil must actively be resisted. We can't just live with it. We must resist it. We must actively resist it. And so that's done away with. Evil will never go away by itself. Thank God though. Thank God. The Lord alone has the power to destroy it. You see the examples in verses 1 through 6. He has the power to destroy it. And this character of God Right? This just character of God gives hope, doesn't it? He's truly just. He's truly defending His people. It gives hope to His church in the midst of a, a church that wants to raise the next generation. People get worried about raising children in the next generation. What if? What if? Never mind. God is in charge, God will carry out His will in a good way always for his church that's the first thing second thing is in overthrowing his enemies god also brings many to repentance so that they look to him see in verse one many not just israel will look to the lord it's often in times of in in times of judgment where god uses that to show that he's merciful And many will return. And he gives an example of that in verse 7. The Philistines, they were continual thorns in the side of his people. And yet you see in verse 7, you see here, God saying, I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. Think about it, right? You think, no, they need mouthwash and they need cleansing of the teeth. That's That's how gross the Philistines were. But God will come to them in that day and he will cleanse them. He will remove the abomination. What that means is he's going to remove the idolatry, the idol worship from them, and he will um, work in such a way that they will look to him, verse 1, and repent. Many of them will. Not all, but many. And then you go to the New Testament and you see Philip, Philip the Evangelist, who was he preaching to? He was preaching the good news in Azotus, that's Ashdod, near Gaza. That's the Philistines. You see the Lord coming with the word through Philip the Evangelist. In Acts chapter 8, verse 40. Think of the Apostle Peter ministering in Joppa and Lydda. That was also in the fringe of the Philistine territory. Or perhaps the words of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 come to mind. Such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So that first thing is, or this thing is that um, uh, among among the nations whom God judges, he, He has a people also from those nations for Himself. He will bring them to repentance. But He uses judgment to bring them to that point. And the third thing, the movement in the opening verses from north to south culminates where? in God's house, that's verse 8 that's where it all comes to that's the center of it all God's house in Jerusalem among his people from whom God's king would come and rule the world that's why he's protecting his people he's keeping his promise from them would come head king who would rule the entire world and that brings us to the second point verses 9 and 10 the coming of the king Adam failed us, we failed We failed God. We need a new Adam. We need a new king. The old Adam is not working well at all in our world, is he? You think about sin brings tyranny, brings oppression, brings indescribable evil. Think of the abuse. Think of the terrible atrocities and misery in our world. And then you see it all and you think Satan seems to be winning. But we need a new Adam. We need a perfect king to save us from ourselves. right? To save us from ourselves so that we can have a king rule over us. We need one who will crush the head of the serpent. The head of Satan. As God announced in Genesis 3.15 And now God Pushing history forward, says to his people, now I'm going to make this announcement to you. There's a king coming. This one, the one you need, God announces here. And you see that in verses, verse 9. He calls the people to rejoice. In the midst of all the hardship and the conflict with the evil nations and cities around them, he says, in the midst of it, you rejoice. Because I'm in charge. I'm in control. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold your king is coming to you. I mean that's that's why we can sing every Sunday again, come together and we can sing, we can shout because of the Lord's promises. Verses 9 and 10 Tell us how this righteous yet gentle king will bring peace and he will extend his rule over all the nations. What kind of king is he? What What is this king like? Three things about him. First, he is just. How many of us look for justice? There's so many things in life that are not fair. But he's just. This king is just. Justice will characterize his reign. He will be 100% fair and just. Second, He has salvation. Boy, I need saving. I need saving for myself. I need saving from all those evil desires in my heart even. And who's the one who possesses that salvation? This king that God announces. This king is salvation for all who come to him. This king is salvation for all who believe on him. And third thing about him, he's just. He has salvation. And the third thing is, he's not proud. He's not arrogant. He's not looking for a vote. What he's looking for is, put it this way, he's this. He's lowly or gentle. Lowly or gentle. You hardly expect that from the character of leaders in our world today, right? Political leaders. They come with pomp and show. This king, though, doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey. A donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's the opposite, the very opposite of proud, oppressive tyrants. Unlike other kings who take life, what does he do? He gives his life. He wins. Not with guns, and bows and arrows, he wins through his sacrifice on the cross. That's how he wins over sin. That's how he wins over evil. That's how he wins over Satan and death. Mark 10, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a deliverance, as a salvation for many. This king is Jesus. In Zachariah's day, they probably didn't know the name. God announced he's coming. They knew. They believed. But today he has come. He's in our midst. Read Matthew 21. He rode the donkey into Jerusalem. There we read in Matthew 21, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And the king of this kingdom doesn't use weapons like other kings. He doesn't use chariots. He doesn't use horses. He doesn't need to. With his coming, look at verse 10. He does the opposite. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is, of course, north Israel. And the the horse from Jerusalem, that's south Israel. So I will cut off the chariot. I will cut off the horse. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. And from the river, there's the Euphrates there. The river to the ends of the earth. This king is not only a king who rules, but he's also a preacher. He has an announcement to make. He preaches peace. And his reign will be over all creation. This is the king that God is pleased with. The only king that he is ultimately and perfectly pleased with. This king. He's the one who will exercise dominion and multiply and be fruitful in the way that God is pleased with. How will he expand his kingdom? If not by bow and arrow? He said earlier, he will expand his kingdom. He will bring his kingdom through his sacrifice by giving up his life. Wow, what a, what a way for the church to live out its life before the world, Right? And love and truth in both ways. This one um, with God through this through him on the cross for our sins, he will offer that peace, right? He offers that peace with God. This King offers that peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He's the one who removes, think about our hearts, right? That's where, that's where the conflict often begins. It begins in our own hearts with hatred and jealousy and envy and all kinds of evil thoughts and lusts. He's come, first of all, to remove that. Remove that hostility. Hostility and hatred from within the heart. And the peace that he offers is Shalom. Beautiful peace. It's not, it's not simply no more war, but it's It's well-being. It's wholeness. Emotional well-being. Physical well-being. Mental, spiritual. It's all together for all who trust on Him. Because of God's love. He willingly and perfectly bore on Himself God's just wrath. And the terrible judgment that mankind deserves. He's the only one who can save you and me by his sacrifice on the cross he's the only one there is no other this is the only way that the world can be saved is through him who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for sinners really do come to him do come to him his reign when you come to him you begin to discover his reign is not one of tyranny It's not one of hardship. It's not one of compulsion. One of forced compliance. We've seen plenty of that in the last two years. But this one is not like that. By his sovereign grace, what does he do? Through faith and then he works a glad submission by his Holy Spirit in us. He doesn't use a bullet. He doesn't use a bow and arrow by his spirit. He works that glad submission in the hearts of his people. Therefore, if anyone is in says scripture, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new has already come. Think of it, it's not yet in all its fullness, but in Christ already it has begun. The world don't understand that. Rejoice, shout, your king has come. You know, in Zechariah's day, God's people were to shout and rejoice over the news of the coming king. We today, we rejoice in the fact that the king has come. But he's also coming again. They had to look forward to his first coming. We don't longer look forward to his first coming. He has come. And he's coming again. And when he comes, one day, how many kingdoms will there be? One kingdom. One king, one people, one king, one kingdom, one people, no more evil, no more sin, no more tragedy, no more misery. And God assures us of this by raising Jesus himself from the dead. And may this promise inspire us to persevere in the midst of conflict, whatever may come our way. And notice that, third of all, 11 through 17, notice that in Christ, He creates a people to serve Him him in this world of battle and war and conflict. That we can stand strong in Him. Notice the the words of verse 11. As for you, (laughs) that's where it begins. Now He's addressing the people. As for you, you also... This is a message for all who belong to the King. The King that's announced here. Who belong to King Jesus. Because of the blood of your covenant. Well that ultimately refers to the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. For sins. He's the one who secures that right relationship with the Lord. He's the one that secures that right relationship with God. Bringing peace. And then verses 11-17 brings up all the benefits. All benefits. For Christ's church today, I list at least three of them. The first one is freedom. You talk about, oh, the world's always talk about freedom. But you talk about freedom. Verse 11b I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. How many people are not trapped today in a waterless pit, in this dark hole where there's no water, there's nothing to thrive in? And they're always announcing they want freedom, they want freedom, they want freedom. But Christ is the one who sets people free. Not just from their past exile. Not just from our sins. But also He's the one who sets us free. Even in the midst of our distresses. The midst of situations of helplessness. And even the feelings of ineffectiveness. We look to Him. There's freedom. Freedom. Not to do what we want. But freedom to serve Him. He sets us free from every form of slavery to sin. That's the first thing. Second thing is, you have a stronghold. See that verse 12? You know, return to the stronghold. Return to him, you prisoners of hope. You have hope. If you feel trapped, you have the Lord. You have his promises. They never fail. He never fails. Kings fail you. Our civil authorities fail us. Our civil authorities disappoint us. Leaders fail us. They disappoint us. This king, never. You can always trust him. He gave his life for us, even to the cross, to death. Return to the stronghold again and again and again. In this stronghold, you get strength. And the third thing is, he raises you to be his bow and arrow. We have to understand that. He doesn't raise us so that we can live a nice, cozy life. Although we can certainly enjoy rest and coziness on the sofa for a bit, but he raises us primarily to become bows and arrows. I think of Psalm 127, right? Children are heritage of the Lord, arrows in the hands of the warrior. Right? Bows and arrows are not. No, bows and arrows are his people. It's his church. God intends to use his church to go forward in the conquest. A bloody one. It may be a very bloody one, but he intends to use us, his people, to be the bow and arrow in this world. Very powerful here. When you think about it, look at verse 13. For I have bent Judah, (laughs) my bow. He calls Judah his bow. That's his people. And fitted the bow with Ephraim, That's the northern tribe of Israel, right? North Israel. Fitted the bow with Ephraim and raised up your sons, O Zion. Judah is the bow. Ephraim is the arrow. God's people working together and says, God, God says, I've raised you up for this very purpose to be my bow and arrow in this world. It's no longer armaments. The state uses armaments. But God uses his people to be his fighters, freedom fighters in this world. Judah is called God's bow, Ephraim is arrow. And this means the means by which the peace and Christ's dominion will come about in verse 10 will only come through our war. We want peace in the world. We pray for it. God says, I'm using you. And I'm using you. I'm bringing you into the conflict. You may die. Even then, you will win because Christ has gained victory over death. But he brings us into the conflict. He engages us in the battle. That's the way peace comes about into the world. It's it's through war against Satan. The world in our own flesh. It's on three different fronts. right? The world, the flesh, and Satan. And yes, this will entail suffering and conflict. To the cross. We must go to the cross. We must die die to ourselves. But you know what? That painful process opens up a new day. A new day for God's people, for His church. Because there will be resilience. There will be joy. There will be shouting. Because the King is on the throne. Yes, the Bible says that we must... Paul said himself in Acts 14... We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You know, the one thing the devil doesn't like, the devil does not like you messing with him. He doesn't like you messing with his kingdom. The devil doesn't. He wants to muzzle you. He wants to keep your mouth shut. He wants you to comply. He wants you to stay quiet. But don't, don't allow him to silence you from speaking the truth. Don't allow him to silence you from speaking the truth as it is in Christ and live according to the truth. Yes, we may call kings. We may call our leaders. We may call our prime minister. We may call our premier, our local authorities. We may call them to repent, to believe in Christ because they're also answerable to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at verses 1 through 8. Right? This is a a warning of love, but also a real warning to them. You are, and I am, God's bow and God's arrow in His hand. Share God's word. Share the truth of the gospel. Live the life that Christ has called us to live by God's word, live out of His promises. Train our children to be active warriors in His kingdom. Think of Hope Academy, right? Even as the public school system is grooming students and children to become perverse people in the world, Hope Academy is there to, among other Christian schools, of course, to uh, to train to train children to become bows and arrows in the hands of God and his kingdom. Wow. Even in death, even in death, even if we die, we are assured victory always in Christ. Life forevermore. Our fight is a spiritual battle. I can't help but think of Ephesians 6 in light of Zechariah 9. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in verses 14 and 15, there you see the Lord, in the midst of this, He says, I want to encourage you. You trust me. You be the bow and arrow. <laughs> you trust me. I will fight over you. I will not fight against you. I will defend you. And... I will have the victory, and you will share my victory. See verses 14 and 15? The Lord will fight for you and defend you. Look at that. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord will be seen over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. Even as we are bows and arrows, his arrow will go with you. The Lord will blow the trumpet. When you think of blowing the trumpet, you think of victory in battle, right? Here we come. We take the initiative. We fight evil. We fight sin in the Lord's strength and go with whirlwinds from the south. And then he talks about the defense. The Lord will fight over you. Then verse 16, 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall, and then here's the victory, his people shall devour and subdue with sling stones. In other words, the strength is such that his enemies will be subdued. They will drink and roar as if with wine, they shall be filled with blood, like basins, like the corners of the altar. There's the image of of a victory feast we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right? There's that feast, the feast of wine and bread. And the Lord intends to nourish us and strengthen us so that we can go forward as his bows and arrows in society, in our world. Truly, God is using us. Think of the word of God, right? It's the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.17. And truly, as we go forward with his word, by his spirit, all who do not believe will perish. Will perish, just like you see in verses 1 through 7. That's just a fact. It's the truth. They will perish. The Lord will cut them off. The Lord will take down their pride. He will cast them out. And at the same time, the Lord is gaining ground. He's gaining a kingdom. And we begin to recognize that through the warfare, only as the church actively fights, you see the Lord gaining ground through us, making a world of peace. God will keep His promise. God will make all things new. Do we really believe that? If we do, we're going to be willing to be his bows and arrows. If we have that conviction, that assurance, Christ is coming back again. He's coming. Behold, your king is coming. Rejoice. Shout. He's coming again. And the promise is that his people will inherit the fullness of his kingdom. The joy everlasting. This creation, (laughs) the land that he fights for, is going to become the new creation Along with the new heavens and this being the new earth. No more struggle. The day of rest is coming. No more struggle. No more pain. No more fighting against sin in ourselves. We fight sin so much. But that day will be over. Christ will bring us into that new creation, eternal peace. Verses 16 and 17. Don't you love the way it ends here? You, his flock. God says, you, my flock, will be like jewels of a crown. Lifted like a banner over his land. (laughs) Banner, you think of victory. The banner over his land, over the earth. How great is its goodness. How grand is its beauty. The Garden of Eden contained jewels. But you go to Revelation. the New Eden, the jewels are... God's people. Scarred today, scarred by all kinds of fights against sin within and fights against the world, the conflicts, scarred. But one day, jewels, jewels with the Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.